Hello, everyone. My name is Jack. Welcome to the Icelandic Roots podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Karen Gummo, who is a storyteller, Icelandic Roots member, as well as many other things. And we start out our conversation by discussing her recent trip to Iceland and there her involvement with the grand opening of the Edda building. And then we get into the origin story of how Karen began to develop an interest in one Laura Selverson. Uh, this is part one of my conversation with Karen Gummo, and we discuss storytelling, connecting to the past, paranormal, historical, myth, reality, emotion, and truth. But do stay tuned for part two of my conversation with Karen Gummo. Made this trip to Iceland to both perform and to make more connections to my ancestors and and to do my best to honor them and in the process I've just had such an enriching time and felt so much love <laughs> and kinship mm-hmm. and there I was 17 years ago on that soccer field and a very generous man offered me up um, to tour his house which was uh, once only for five years or four years it o- was o- was rented by probably rented by um, Laura Salverson Laura Guzman's daughter no Laura we Laura Laura's daughter really <laughs> but Laura Guzman Salverson and her husband George and their little son George Jr. who was seven at the time uh, he's you know offered me up a chance to tour the house which is really looking like it's virtually unchanged since 1923 and then borrow the books that Laura Salverson had written and I had not heard of Laura Salverson but she was a gypsy like so many people on earth nomadic due to poverty and due to seeking out with new hope some other circumstance and so in the process I have of research and developing this story I've developed such close connections with people both in Calgary and then through Icelandic roots Mm -hmm. across um, North America well especially Penticton where Laura's um, niece Joe Peterson lives and is such um, well-versed in how to use Icelandic roots uh, resources and so proud of her aunt. Julie Salverson, granddaughter of my beloved Laura, um, didn't know anything really much. She did. She knew some things when they were not happy things always. Um, But she... I wasn't sure if she would be interested. I was terrified because who was I not being part of the family and I was going to tell her grandmother's tale mm. in first person. Yeah. <laughs> in Banff. And then after a while, it, there were connections made through uh, Hulda Karen Daniel's daughter that mm-hmm. I could should bring it to Iceland to the opening of the Edda. Yes. I was just terrified again. And, and yet not because I had spent so much time getting to know Laura through research and through 
rehearsing bits of her mm -hmm. story mm -hmm. that I was just entirely looking forward to it and knowing that I'd make more connections through her story. And I would help Julie Salverson, who's a professor, just, just about to retire mm -hmm. at um, Queen's University in Kingston and who deeply loves her father, who has died now. And he was, I learned, one of Canada's most important storytellers of the Second World War because of his crooked nose. He couldn't go overseas because who knows what would have happened when he put on a face, you know, a gas mask. And he, because of his mother, uh, who, with whom he had a tenuous relationship, um, partly because of his wife, who didn't like her, but I don't know if we should talk about that. No, we don't have to talk about that. But, um, uh, so Julie, um, very proud of her father and his tour of the world to end world hunger mm -hmm. after he retired as, as CBC's most prolific playwright wow. for radio and television. Mm -hmm. And he... Um, even collaborated with his mother mm. and in interviews that Julie sent me I learned that he was a sportscaster a broadcaster in Flinthon, Manitoba when um, someone in the studio said we need a New Year's play your mother writes doesn't she you can write it we need it for tomorrow and he, so he responded not thinking he could really do it but mm. then after a while finding it not to be such a challenge mm. because as a boy he'd sat in his mother's studio wow. when she gave salons and entertained visiting professors and so uh, serendipity for me that Julie had this new passion to discover more about her grandparents and especially about her grandmother and mm. said to me when I sent the when I connected to her over and over I want to come and hear you perform. Oh, but I'm having gallbladder surgery on when you're in Banff. And oh, I, th I thought I could come in the summer, but something else came up. And uh, then she said, oh, you're doing it in Iceland? Okay, I'll come to your show and we'll meet there. <laughs> and I thought, okay. Out of all the places, it's the furthest one. It's the furthest one. But she said, as far as she knew, she was the first person in her family to go back to Iceland oh, wow. since 1886. Wow. The thing she didn't know is that her grandmother's youngest brother, Albert, was mm -hmm. a dipl he went to Iceland for the anniversary of the, um, you know, of the Althing, mm -hmm. the thousandth anniversary <laughs> in 1930, and then he stayed there. He never mm -hmm. left, wow. and he became a diplomat. Oh, a politician and a diplomat. Yeah. And he had, yeah, he, so we didn't find, well, we did. We found someone who was a fourth cousin mm. to Julie, mm. and she was our volunteer tour guide okay. who took us to find their homesteads wow. or their lands um, on the Snifelsness Peninsula. Mm. And we intended to go to Reykholt, which is where, um, her Ingebjörg, Laura's mother, spent many years, and actually so did Laura's, mm. uh, her Laura's father, so Julie's great grandfather. It's it's tricky uh -huh. with all these yes, fathers. Yeah, it it depends is. on whose 
point of view I'm referring to or right, who's right true mm-hmm. yeah um, and so it turned out that this very beautiful fit 79 year old drove us <laughs> all around and talked about how this mountain connected to this saga and this mm. one and she'd been to the top of all of them I was royally treated by cousins at Holar uh-huh. and met Valgir at mm. Hopsos again but only for a quick visit right. heard about the day that Sierra or screamed because she was reading uh-huh. a scene from Bill Holmes uh-huh. novel and she saw the ghost in the room <laughs> I've heard about your... So people have kept telling me, asking me, and meeting with Nelson a couple weeks ago, he said, did you have any experiences when you were in Brimness? And other people have asked me this as well, and I know, I think it's in his book, in Windows of Brimness, or maybe a different book, but one of them talks about the ghost that lives in the spare bedroom off of the kitchen. And I was reading that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's the bedroom that I'm sleeping in. <laughs> and I'm, you know, of course, reading this after having been there for a few days already. And so, oh, that's so interesting. I wonder if anything will happen. And sure enough, like I went through the whole two months there and nothing really like that stood out to me. But <clears throat> I think now reflecting on it, it maybe depends on how you define experiences. And of course, we're kind of talking about what people would call the paranormal. And I think my understanding of this sort of thing has been so skewed by like ghost movies that I'm always thinking it has to be something terrifying. It has to be, like you said, something that makes you scream Mm -hmm. to be this connection. Mm -hmm. But as I think back to it, I definitely felt a connection to something that I don't know if that was just me creating this connection. I was reading the books that Bill Holm was reading as he wrote his books. I was reading his books that were shaped by the perspective of him being in the same house as me. I was meeting with and spending time with the same people that he knew as well. So I felt the connection through that. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much of that is just you create in your mind or how much of that is something you could call like a spirit that is guiding you. I think you could interpret it either way. Um, But I will say in terms of feeling and energy or something, um, I certainly had evenings where I will do these things where I'll play on my phone through a speaker like a breathwork thing to follow through so it's just like a guided breathing it's like in and out and it goes through and there's like you know some sort of music playing it's a very nice way to kind of force yourself to meditate and to feel really calm and nice and so I would do that many evenings and you will do a breath hold after and close your eyes and uh, I would do that laying on the ground and I remember feeling like you know I need to open my eyes or I need to like stop this and I felt like I don't know like a little bit of anxiousness maybe and I don't know if that's like feeling something of course the door is never locked in the house too so maybe there is just a bit of like you know cautiousness like okay maybe you shouldn't be uh you know so you should be a bit more focused and mindful of things but that's all I can say to feeling any sort of a connection uh to what you might call the paranormal I've been thinking about this a lot of people have been asking me did you have any experiences and that's all I can really say which uh maybe is to be interpreted that way. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think it, when you have that much time of quiet, mm-hmm. I think you're bound to have a paranormal experience mm-hmm. because you are welcoming it <coughs> in mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. in that you're listening so intently. Mm-hmm. And I do, my husband keeps saying, 
he gets mixed out up about who's who in, in the family right. of my um, ex- my ancestors, and he'll, he'll say, well, you don't know Ophager, hmm. do you? Because he died the year before you were born. And I say, yes, I do. Hmm. I, I, I know him so well. Hmm. And, and it is that extended time, yeah. just reading articles, interviewing mm. people about how he ran like a Laplander mm. um, and how he walked from Markerville to Calgary um, to be a shepherd for Scottish sheep ranchers at, on the Nose Creek mm. and, you know, went home with a, with a bag of uh, sugar and coffee and flour on his back and a bit of cash <laughs> so he could increase his herd of sheep mm. and... Um, and boarding the rivers because there were no bridges. And yes, you, you really get to know someone through that. And mm. yeah, I don't know if you look up a definition of paranormal, if it means it has to be like ghost stories, but then there is just like you're saying, a way that you can really feel like you know someone, even if, like you said, they passed away before you were born or you've never actually met them. And that is something I would like to circle in on because you're mentioning this with, with Laura as well and the sort of uh learning about people in the past that you've not met but then um the question of who am i to be telling this story especially when there are people alive today that maybe did know these people in person so i felt that way with bill home Mm -hmm. although i don't think i am necessarily trying to tell his story per se but i'm often telling stories about him and about a connection that I have to him, which I sometimes check myself and think, well, what am I saying? I never met this person, and who am I to talk about him when there's other people alive today that actually knew him in person? Mm-hmm. But I'm constantly trying to think that through, and so I would like to just hear more about how you think about that, and you kind of were touching that, touching on that already with your experiences telling the story with of Laura. So With her, so. With her family mm-hmm. in, in the vicinity, yeah. yes. I do find that the most terrifying audience that I can have is my own family. Mm. I know of talking to people within theater who are performing, and they'll often say they get the most nervous when they have family members in the audience. You know, I would tell the story of my, my mother and my aunt robbing magpie nests around Red Deer so that they could have a little cash to buy some candy, uh-huh. you know, and, and the way I tell it, uh, they end up getting a message from a Norwegian bachelor who gets invited for dinner now and then and who loves magpies, a new view of this mm. uh, this right. horrid bird <laughs> uh, who's so much like humans. Mm-hmm. Too um, smart for their own good. Yeah, I and so I say. told it at a family reunion <laughs> and I lay and I know that my aunt still sometimes would go and strangle magpies <laughs> or just throw the, the, the eggs out of the nest and I... Yeah. I just shivered in my bed that night, mm. and I thought, and I went to talk to her even like two days later, at the, and she said, oh, Karen, mm. that was a great story. <laughs> <laughs> but she, like, I, I think, she knows all the things I threw in there, I invented. Right, right. But I do, when I tell stories in schools, children often say to me, is that story true? Mm. And uh, what I say is, and I learned it really from a folktale called The Curious Girl, um, that there is, and from other storytellers, Mm. because I'm part of a whole community of storytellers, 
that there is truth in every story. And right. I think we see that when we compare our impression of a novel that we read mm -hmm. or of something that we shared together and experienced. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I remember it this way and mm -hmm. you remember it that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I just say there is truth in every story. Right. Um, might be, you know, just a thimbleful or a truckload. Where is the truth for you mm -hmm. in that story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It actually makes me think about this in many ways. Um, of course, it's sort of like the, uh, I don't know if you call it a debate or not, about the sagas and how accurate information is in different mm -hmm. books versus other ones and say, oh, these ones are a bit more fictionalized, whereas these other ones are accepted as a bit more truthful. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly a conversation around the sagas. Um, I often think about that so much with all types of reading today even, mm -hmm. and how history can be written in so many different ways. So you can get a history book that's just totally factual, factual, but then there could be other truths outside of that, not even changing um, the actual facts, but just bringing in different perspectives. And I actually meant to uh, ask Nelson for a bit more insight onto this in terms of writing uh, history in the way that he has. Because doing the bits of writing that I've done, I oftentimes get concerned about my writing and think like, oh, well, maybe this is something I need to research more, right? Like, I'm just writing this story that I heard from one person, but maybe that's not true. So I get kind of worried that I'm going to be writing something that isn't true and that'll maybe have a negative impact. Mm -hmm. But I think, like you're saying, maybe I need to take more of the approach that there's some truth in everything and as long as you're not blatantly lying right no, yeah. then there's not going to be harm done by you're it. actually i think falling in love with your character mm -hmm. and um certainly laura was has had some bad press because mm -hmm. she was not born in iceland mm -hmm. and she only learned about it from the tales her parents told her and then right. interviews that she undertook in winnipeg with elders who were there you know, um, some of them might have been related to me who went to Kinmount first, then to, uh, you know, New Iceland, then to North Dakota, then to mm -hmm. Minnesota, then to, yeah. <laughs> and then to Saskatchewan, then right. to Alberta, then to BC, then to Brazil, then, uh -huh. you know, <laughs> that gypsy journey that some of them, pretty pro, mm -hmm. you know, prolonged, yeah. trying to find their Valhalla. But she approximated, she did her best to document that from her interviews, but she was criticized because mm. of the way she described the landscape in Iceland before she, they left. Mm. And she really didn't know that part well, yeah. but because she described um, volcanoes that came right down to the sea mm. and that, you know, they were just getting on the boat and her brother died because he ran back to save the dog. Mm. Or, and so there were people who thought, you know, she doesn't know what uh -huh. she's writing about. But what I realize is we're all, as storytellers and listeners, drawn to that emotional heightened moment. Right. And I have told this story for years that I was there when my sister arrived home from uh, traveling with her boyfriend in Africa mm -hmm. that... Um, uh, and when she announced to my parents, yeah, we were married in Nairobi, mm. and then burst into tears, I said, and they'd only met this fellow once, <laughs> but they're still married, mm. uh, I sa I've said for years, 
well, I remember when when my our brother, our baby brother, sprayed a heart on the outdoor patio, and my sister said, "Well, that's really nice." Mm-hmm. And I've always said I was there, and my my sister said, "No, you weren't." Mm-hmm. Mom got up and called you, mm. and I realized <gasps> I was so hurt that she said I wasn't there. Mm. But I I you know connected myself to that in my memory, yeah, and yeah, I was yeah. so certain. Mm. So in the same way, Laura Salverson um, remembered from tales her mother told mm. that. She had lost a child at sea on the journey from Iceland in 1886 mm-hmm. to Canada. And people said, well, no, she didn't. That child's name wasn't on the ship's list. Mm-hmm. There was a child that died and was buried in Quebec City, but there was no child. I kind of referred to that in the question and answer after mm-hmm. I told the story at the Edda, and she said she was affronted first first that Stephen Gay Stephenson wouldn't have liked her and mm. supported her <laughs> but she was the first Icelander to write in English that's a digression mm. but that people would question uh, Laura's mother for not remembering such an emotional trauma yeah. as a child being lost at sea their technical examination of facts mm-hmm. could well be wrong yes. because they didn't get always all the names on the ship's list that's sort of the story of life is you're always trying to contend with these technical um tracing of facts and then also uh people's emotional experiences and something i think really interesting that you just pointed out in terms of our memory the memories that we form are so uh form formed by these really heightened emotion emotional states and uh, then when we're telling stories, those tend to be the bits that we focus on. But then in your example there, because your emotions were so heightened in that moment, your memory of it might have been shaped differently. So then you focus most on that, and then you're telling the story of that, and then you're almost then creating this sort of new reality. So it's fascinating which comes first right? The emotional experience that we have that shapes our memory of that. And then telling the story about that because that was the most emotionally heightened moment. And then that uh, reinforces that over and over and over again. And I wonder how much of our history is based on that. Because they'll tell you in a a trial. Yes, right. Someone gets a, Mm. you know, is certain that Mm -hmm. they saw this thing. Mm. And and then they begin to look at all details Mm. of it and think, Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah. if you were really there or not. Right. I don't know, you know. And, but you, yeah, uh, my dad said, mm. Karen, you tell that story about how I let the chickens walk through the pies? <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Mm. And only I just get blamed for everything. <laughs> and and I said, Dad, I've been telling that story for 15 years. <laughs> so it's true. Yes, right, right. That's the thing, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't know. That's very fascinating. And I'm sure that's the history of so many uh, books and stories. And if we're focusing on the sagas and the stories that Icelanders tell, I think in many ways, I'm sure you could just figure out that's the history of it, you know, is is that sort of storytelling dynamic that plays out. And then uh, when it comes to what you end up writing down yeah. is uh, what you're most emotionally drawn to. So. Yeah. 
it's very fascinating. It is, and I, I always say people tend to dismiss folklore mm. and mythology because it's chaotic for them. It's too there's too much magic. Right. And I always try to remember that each of those folk tales, or sagas, or myths started with a human event, most likely. Yeah. And then they've been told and honed. And the Italian storyteller Italo Calvino always says, the tale is not beautiful if nothing is added to it. Mm. Right. uh, Yeah, and you say that mythology being chaotic, um, I think it's funny because you can actually go and find like genealogy of the Norse gods and that sort of thing. And so obviously we all know that that's not like true, but... (laughs) We know that it's not true, that it's not reality, but also you can't dispute the genealogy of such, right? Like there is a true Norse god mythology yeah. in that you can't say that, you know, Thor is the father to someone who he isn't the father of. Yeah. But then we all know that it's not actually true that these gods were physically there and that anyone saw them. So it's funny the different meanings of truth yeah. in, in that in that. Uh, in the realm of mythology, so. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, and then the sagas, Grettir Ausmundersen, mm. the strongest man in Iceland, mm-hmm. who was demonized, who was falsely accused, who was, um, attri- he, you know, so many feats, physical feats of strength, yeah. were attributed to him. But people will say, well, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> It might have been, you know, several characters that mm. are, were added to the story by different people who wanted to make the tale beautiful. Yep. <laughs> um, and more alluring. Yeah. And I think fundamentally, um, I think we all would agree that it's not a bad thing. No. Again, there's blatant lying, which is not good, of course. But then there is the very human trait of, like you said, uh, you know, making a story beautiful and adding emotions to things and sort of creating a truth. And as long as we all don't get too confused and don't uh, understand what is, you know, physically true and what is metaphorically true, then uh, this is just how we operate as humans, which uh, I think such a defining trait of us as a species is our storytelling, right? Obviously our communication abilities amongst each other is just profound and is what has led to uh, uh, so much of uh, our world that we live in today. So, Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe motivated by our human desire for love mm-hmm. and connection. Mm-hmm. We think about our audience. I always say, love yourself, love your story, love your listeners, and there's someone that's going to give you a look while mm. you're delivering a story and <laughs> you think, oh, well, I'll just change this part. Or, you know, (laughs) that reminds me of this, Uh you know. Yes. Well, maybe a a quick break for, what did you call it? Some cosmic power? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's have a nibble. All right. Snack. Mm -hmm. What's the word for snack? (laughs) Probably probably like 20 different words. Yeah. (laughs) What was uh, some favorite foods that you had there? 
Oh. Um, or is that a whole podcast segment yeah, no. in and of itself? <laughs> Just um, in the homemade things. Yeah. Amazing yeah. trout with, um, you know, um, Icelandic salat, which is feta cheese and olive mm. oil. And, and, oh, yes. Yeah, so really good. I that's love really the, good. Yeah. And then dates thrown on there mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. olives and, mm. you know, yeah. our... And lamb, just the, yes. oh my goodness. And yeah, so many things. And I made vina charcha while I was over oh, there wow. with my cousin's rhubarb jam and some prunes that I bought. And did they know about vina tarta that you made it with? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they yeah. did. Mm. But they said they almost always had it with, um, pr- uh, not prunes, rhubarb. Mm, right. Rabarbara. I guess that would make more sense. How would they get prunes there? They do have. I mean, in the old days, yeah, I don't right. think yeah. I don't think it. But rhubarb, been. even rhubarb too. I, I forget. I remember looking this up where it originated from as a plant. It really does well in cold weather. But yeah, yeah. But it would have had to have been introduced to Iceland. Yeah. I don't think it's native. But it it's so great because it looks like a tropical mm-hmm. plant. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it grows so big and so and, quickly. Yeah. Hello, Ken. Hello. Hello. This is the famous Jack. Yes. Yes. Sorry if I'm interrupting. No, no nice worries. Yes, nice to meet you. Jack just kind of did a segue down to a yes. break. <laughs> Do you want a cosmic power cookie?